0: Wonderful to sing to you. Music is a part of your created glory. Music was created to give you glory, to express the desire of the hearts of your image bearers, to sing your glory, to express the delight in your glory that is in the hearts of those who know you and who belong to you, and those who have been redeemed by you, and those who. Who have your spirit in us and you have the life of Christ in us now that the Messiah has come. And we know with even greater fullness your eternal plan of redemption played out in providing for us that final sacrifice. A savior who would rescue us from the condemnation that we were born under, the sin that we were enslaved to. To bring us into a kingdom, his kingdom for his glory A kingdom in which we are joyful citizens and we long to know the full privileges of that citizenship one day. And so to that end, give us confidence and build our hope and delight our hearts as we open your word together and we see Christ. And we know that you inform our minds, but then by the work of the Spirit, that information doesn't stay there. It goes down into the affections of our hearts And it doesn't stay there as merely an affection, but then must work itself out in the movement of our will to live in obedience to our King. And so to that end, we pray that you would do your perfect work in us, and again to your everlasting glory. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Open up your Bibles, if you will, again to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, as John noted that a lot of the songs that we sing this morning, Uh, We're focused on the, the worship of Christ as the risen lamb, the glory of God as the redeemer of his people... And we get here uh, a glimpse into the worship of heaven, and really all of Scripture is like a window. I I often have that picture in my head. It's like a a window that we get to look through Scripture, the written word, and on the other side, we're looking at the glory of God in Christ, who He is, how He works in the world. We're, We're getting a glimpse, as we often say, of reality, the way things actually are, who God actually is, the world He actually made, what He's actually doing, and what the future actually will be as he sums up all things under the administration of Christ, who is the Lord of heaven and earth. And so when we come to chapter 4 and 5 of Revelation, we get a unique glimpse into the glories of heaven. And it's a, a glimpse that is filled with not only the majesty of God, but symbols and sights and sounds and descriptions that are meant to bring us, as it were, into his presence and before the throne. And not merely to bring us into his presence to Delight our curiosities or to fill us emotionally with some sense of who he is and mysteries beyond our normal capacity to understand But it is also to instill in us a sense of hope and a sense of certainty and a sense of the glory that is ours And the certainty of the promises of God being fulfilled for us and for all of his people And so he's meant to give us a sense of hope a sense of hope that is grounded in who he is and what he has done in his faithfulness, the certainty that all will one day be made right. And that really is our hope. And at the center of all of that is Christ, is Christ, is the one through whom God created all things and for whom he created all things. He is the center of our hope. And so when we think of salvation, Really, we should think of it as much more personally than merely the fact that we've been forgiven of our sins, that we've been reconciled to God, although this is at the heart of it. Not merely the fact that a kingdom is coming, that justice will be made, but God gives us the greatest gift of all in salvation, and that is himself. He gives us himself. He gives us his nearness. He gives us the certainty of relationship with him forever forever. And He gives us the certainty that we are on the winning side and that Him who has redeemed us has loved us before the foundation of the world and will bring to us all that it has delighted His heart to give to us in Christ. Now we noted in chapter 4, the chapters 4 and 5, break down into two main ideas. And chapter 4 is really a focus of John's entrance in this vision into the throne room of God to see His glories with the the four living creatures and the 24 elders around the throne and the the lightning and the peals of thunder and the colors that are emanating and the massive glass sea-like crystal that is before the throne and angels and all of these elders falling down giving him worship. And there's a focus here in all of this on the one who sits on the throne, namely God the Father. And then we have in chapter 5 a movement from this vision of this glorious throne and the environment of heaven and the one who sits on the throne, a movement into an object in his hand, which we noted last week, and it was a book or a scroll. And in this scroll is contained the will of God for all of creation. It may be a a title deed to the earth that Could be a variety of suggestions, but the main idea of it is that it contains the final application of God's purposes for this world and the coming of Christ and the establishment of his kingdom on the earth. And so this book becomes the central object of importance throughout this vision. And as the central object of importance, it has garnered a question that was suggested by one of the angels. Who is worthy to open this book? Who is worthy to open this book? And in that question, there hangs in the balance all of God's eternal purposes for creation. It's all bound to the one who can open that book. And the question is, who is worthy? That is, who is worthy to bring about God's will for his people and for creation? And we were reminded that none of creation is worthy, but there is one who is worthy, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is both God, the one who is both God and man. And so Jesus Christ then and the Lamb of God becomes the central, the central figure in chapter 5. The central figure is the one who will fulfill all that God has promised to us. Let's read if we will with me chapter 5 verses 1 through 14 for context and then we'll look at it again this glorious picture of Christ together. Beginning in verse 1, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. And we have then really the sum of some purpose of why God created anything that was to redeem for himself a people on whom he would eternally display his grace and they would eternally respond to that grace with worship and delight and praise in the one who alone is worthy. And so the second point, the first point we looked at was the worthiness of Christ and the second is the worship of all of creation. The worship of all of creation. As already noted and we just read, the central issue, that the central burden that, that God wanted to present before John to record for us was the issue of who is worthy and only one could come forth as worthy and that was the one that God provided, indeed the one who would be God the Son himself in flesh. He is the worthy one and he is the only one who is worthy. Beyond many other things that at once shuts down and silences every other attempt and every other attempt at an explanation or a means of being reconciled to God outside of what God has provided in Christ. Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no one who comes to the Father but through him. There is only one through whom God's redemption and salvation has been accomplished. There is only one through which we, by whom we come to God. And there is only one who is worthy to fulfill all of God's purposes for creation. And it's Christ. And so as Christians we delight in that. The worthy one having been found... We pick up where we left off last week. He now moves then to take the book out of the hand of him who sat on the throne. His weeping was brought to an end as he saw the strong and the mighty one provided by God to open the book that otherwise would remain closed. And he says in verse 7 then that he came and he took the book or the scroll, out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, verse 8, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down. Simply notice first that when he took the book, the response of all of heaven was worship, was worship. And it is the character and the content of this worship which fills out the rest of this vision. Let's note the character of it. What happened in the first expression of this worship when he took the book out of him who sat on the right hand? It says the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. They fell down before the lamb. The first response then at Christ being found worthy was reverence and humility. And one of the things that's lacking in all of this scene, and something we'll cover in a couple weeks more when we go through principles of worship, is a complete lack of self. A complete lack of self. What fills the heart of everybody who surrounds the throne and those who are now witnessing Christ, the Lamb, taking the book or the scroll from the right hand of him who sits on it is a complete lack of thought of self. It is being lost in the glory and the wonder of Christ. There is a self-forgetfulness to true worship. And that is a mark of true worship is humility. Lowly reverence before the greatness and the infinite glory of God. The mark of true worship is a sense of self-forgetfulness, a sense of smallness, a sense of getting lost in who God is and who God is for us in Christ. That's the first mark of the character of worship. Look at what they did. It says that they fell down. They fell down. The idea here is probably that they fell down on their face, not merely on their knees, but in either way, they collapsed to the ground to bow to give reverence to him who was before them. This is a common response to the apprehension of who God is and who Christ is even as a little child in the manger when the magi came to visit him their response in Matthew chapter 2:11 was that it says using the same verb they fell down before him they fell down before him and they offered that baby worship because they understood the significance of the one who was before them sometimes it's the response of fear when the disciples were on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, and the Father spoke with a voice from heaven, it says, using the same verb, they fell down. They fell down in great fear of the one who had spoke to them, spoken to them from heaven. Sometimes it's of deep gratitude. The desperate leper was healed by Jesus, and he fell down in Luke 5:12. Sometimes it's the picture here is of great agony. And so Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane fell down on his face before the Father as he anticipated his sin-bearing work that lied before him. John fell down before Christ. You'll remember when he saw him in the vision in Revelation chapter 1 with the hair white like wool and all of those glorious garments. And he says he fell down before him like a dead man. The elders are here falling down before the throne. Later, all of the creation will fall down before the throne. The idea then is it is a right response when presented with the majesty of God, rightly apprehended, to fall down, to give him worship, to exalt him, to give him reverence, to acknowledge his greatness, to fall on our knees before great authority. With overwhelming reverence and fear. It is also an act of submission, of lowliness, of offering ourselves in glad obedience to the King. It's a position that one day all of creation, we'll look at this later, will take before Christ when every knee will bow before Him who is God's anointed. It's an attitude of heart, primarily. The position of the body here shows, more importantly, the position of the heart before greatness. That is true worship. There's no prescribed physical response. There's no way that God commands that true worship be marked by falling down on the knees or that a particular action be done. But what is required of all who would truly worship him is that, and those who worship him in truth is to have the right heart attitude before him. Before the majesty of God. Now if we understand that we can consider and think of how much flippancy in our heart and vanity and triviality that we need to repent of when we often come before God. As if it were merely a superficial activity or a Christian activity. How, how often we would offer to God what we would call worship where our minds are wandering somewhere else. Where our hearts may even hold on to thoughts of vanity and pride. Or even disobedience. But that's not true worship. The true worship here is the one who comes before him as the king of kings and the lord of lords. And the attitude is to want to fall down before him on our face. So there is reverence and fear in true worship. That's the character of true worship. He says then, he notes that there is an attitude of, or the character of joyful hope. And we could probably call this a variety of things but here's the picture each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints and then they sang to him a new song joy joy is pictured here really i would capture that with the harp the instrument that they're holding in their hand it's a cathara, if you want to Particular name. It's very similar to a harp. It's very sim- or it is a harp described as a harp. It's very similar to the lyre, which is often mentioned in the Old Testament in the context of worship that is offered to God. Just to give a picture, it's a small-stringed harp-like instrument held in the hands and plucked. It's just a little thing. You there? There it is. Those are some old pictures. That's what it looked like. Something like that would have been in this vision that they were holding in their hands. And as noted, it was often an instrument that God designed and that what God accepted from, that from the worship of his people throughout the Old Testament. It's an instrument that was used to play music to the glory of God while we counting his attributes and his glory. We won't go through all of them. Let me just give you one. Sing for joy to the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre and sing praises to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. That's why we call this joy. The instrument is not here playing a somber song, but the instrument is to play a song of worship, to play a song of praise, to play a song of gratitude, to play a song that expresses that which fills the heart of the worshiper of God. They have harps in their hands to sing songs, to play music. It's a, a sound that pleases God when coming from the heart that truly worships Him mindful that they are singing this song after it is described them as having fallen down before him. It's an incredible picture, and we're going to cover this more in a couple of weeks, but let me just note this. This instrument is also noted as the music which fills the kingdom of the Antichrist. It expresses the jubilation and the joy of those who are opposed to God. And here I would just make this observation again that we'll cover more later. That the instrument can be used for good or evil to promote what is beautiful or corrupt. It's not the instrument, but it's the reason and the purpose and the end for which it's used. Here, it is used for worship. Each one of these angelic beings is holding a harp. And notice what else he says. They're holding a harp and bowls full of incense. And here's the idea of hope. You might say, where do you get the idea of hope? Well, let me explain it. Each one is holding a harp and golden golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now, first, let me just make a brief note about the imagery here. It shouldn't be pressed too far. Sometimes there's more discussion than there probably should be over who, how are they holding a harp, how are they holding a bowl, or some holding the harp and then some the bowl. And there are a variety of options of the way to understand that. But here he's meant to give an impression. And the impression that he wants to give in filling out this glorious vision is one of worship, of delight and joy and of hope in, this, in what they're holding in their hand. That's the main idea could be that just the elders are holding this or that they each have one in one hand, a harp in one hand and a bowl in the other. But in either case, it's not the bowl itself that is important. It's what fills them. What fills it? These golden bowls are, he says, full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Which are the prayers of the saints. Now, it's possible for those who want to take these as human Figures ...the 24 elders and redeemed saints... ...it's possible they're holding their own symbols of their own prayers... ...that they're now pouring out to God. More likely, as I've stated before... ...I would take these as angelic representatives of the church... ...and that they are holding before God the prayers of the saints... ...that they will then offer to God. This connection of incense and prayer is, of course, not new... There was the incense that burned continually in the Holy of Holies. That was a picture there of prayers being offered up to God. The prayers of his people. A a soothing smell in his ears as they looked to him as their creator and redeemer. As they looked to him as their hope. Uh, It's made explicitly in Psalm 141 where he says, May my prayer, verse 2, be counted as incense before you. The lifting up of my hands as the evening offering." Here, this, that reality finds its culmination in the bowls that are being held by these angelic beings, which, again, are the prayers of the saints. Now, we had to ask ourselves, what prayer fill the bowls? What kind of prayers? Is this all of the prayers? Is this every petition of all of the saints that now are being poured out before God? Some take it that way, but that's not very likely in my, in my understanding of it. It's more likely here that these are specific prayers of the saints. That these are specific prayers that will be laid out before the Lamb. What prayers then would they be? It suggests that they are the prayers of God's people for justice and for righteousness upon the earth. For his avenging their blood. For his coming kingdom that will set all things right. You remember that Jesus taught us as his church to pray for these things. We pray what? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is precisely what is about to take place. The kingdom is coming to be established on earth. His will will be done, which will include both salvation and judgment. Indeed, that is always the cry of God's people who suffer the injustice of men. Again, Jesus taught his people to pray this in teaching the persistence of prayer. He says this in the parable of the unrighteous judge. You'll remember in Luke 18, the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God, now he's making a comparison of God, how much superior to the unrighteous judge who caved to the will of the woman who was persistent. He says, Now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? It was the prayer of those who came out of the tribulation in chapter 6, verse 10 of Revelation, they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? These are the prayers that are filled those bowls. And the implication here is that the time has come for the longings of the hearts and the cries of the saints throughout the ages for this, to bring them the justice that is due them. To bring them the justice that is due them. To bring them the righteousness and the experience of the righteousness of the kingdom for which they long. The ultimate end being the glory of God. And this is incredibly important. Because those are prayers that for many lifetimes and many saints, the millions really, that go seemingly unanswered. Right? We live millennia later. Has righteousness and justice been established on the earth? Has every wrong been avenged? Has every persecutor of God's people been held to account and to justice before him? Has every right wrong been righted? No. It's what we hope for. It's the certainty, though, that he wants to give his people that this, in fact, will be what will come about. God will bring it about. Now, if you haven't experienced injustice and persecution... That may seem like, or that, that reality might lose some of its force and its power. But for those who have experienced injustice, those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, those who have been lied against and wrongly accused and wrongly suffered because of the hatred of the world against them for the name of Christ, then this is a, a deep, deeply encouraging promise. It's behind what he says in Romans chapter 12. I'll just read it to you. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. If you've experienced injustice, and if you've experienced injustice, particularly for the name of Christ, what quells that sense of desire to retaliate, to get back? To get revenge. And it is this. this, That revenge is not ours to take. It's God's to give. It's not ours to bring about. It's what God will bring about. He will make everything right. Justice will be established. And this justice is to take on. A global and worldwide application. And indeed that's really an incredible thought. This is the justice of God's. That God's people long for. It's the justice, listen, that all of creation longs for. It's the justice that all of creation longs for. Listen to the way this is talked about in the Psalms. And then I want to highlight just one feature of this particularly. Listen, this is Psalm 96. And just just listen. Verse 11. Well, in verse 10. Let the Lord, the Lord reigns, indeed the world is firmly established, it will not be moved, he will judge the peoples with equity, let the peoples be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar and all that it contains, let the field exult and all that is in it, then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth, and he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. Psalm 98, speaking of singing praises to the Lord with the lyre, the sound of melody, trumpets, the sound of the horn, shout joyfully before the king, the Lord, let the sea roar and all that it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands and the mountains sing together for joy before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth and he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. The picture there is that God's creation, it's it's really something that Paul pulls up on in Romans 8, that all creation groans under what? The corruption that sin has brought. The longing of all of creation is to be set free and to see righteousness on the earth. And that is the promise to God's people, that righteousness will come to the earth, justice will be made and had. And note the, the language of joy. It's a language of joy. That's what I find so striking about that. Because what is the judgment going to bring? The judgment is going to bring destruction. The judgment is going to bring death. The judgment is going to bring the most horrible suffering to those who stand in rejection to God. And yet the language that describes this coming day isn't one of sadness. It's not even one of sorrow. It's one of rejoicing and joy. What a God centered view of the world this brings us to. It's about God's glory on His earth. It's His creation. It's His rivers. It's His mountains. It's His fields. It's His land. It's His people. And he deserves all the glory from it. And so the fact that he doesn't receive glory from it brings within the heart of heaven and all of God's people a sense of joy at the anticipation of him ridding the earth and his creation of all that stands in opposition to him. That's a humbling thought. But that's all of revelation after this. What are they rejoicing over? They're rejoicing over the fulfillment of the prayers of the saints that God alone would be glorified on the earth and all that stands in rebellion to Him would be destroyed because that's right. That's good. The song of worship is a song that is so focused and so delighting in the singular glory of God that they anticipate with music. And with song, his coming to make things right and to be glorified among his people and his creation. And that's exactly what it produces. Verse 9. They sang a new song. They sang a new song. It caused the music of heaven to be attended with the words of the worshipers. And they praised him. And this is leading then to the content of the praise. The character is that it's humble The character is that it's filled with joy, that it's filled with hope that all will be right. And it has the confidence in that joy and hope and humility because of the reality of who God is and what he's done. And it wells up in the people of God and in those in the presence of God, a new song, a new song. What is a new song? You can think of it in this way. It's fresh expressions of praise and gratitude and delight in God. It's the spontaneous reaction of the heart to who God is. And that is the essence of worship. Worship is a response to who God is in all of his fullness and in all of his glory. It is the involuntary, it is the spontaneous, it is the natural response to coming face to face with God. We read it earlier, we'll stay in Psalm 33. Sing to Him a new song, play skillfully with a shout of joy. The overwhelming praise that comes into the heart of a true worshiper. And what is the focus of this spiritual delight? The first is what has been the focus of the entire passage and that is the worthiness of Christ. The worthiness of Christ, the soul worthiness of Him who is to reign. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. The song rises then from the reality of Christ as being the hope of the ages, the certainty of the fulfillment of God's plan, of God's salvation. Worthy are you. Again, that's the central theme Christ worthiness, His exclusive and soul worthiness to bring about the completion of God's plan and again note the complete lack of self-centeredness of self-interest it is a song it is praise it is music that is captured with only one and that is christ and particularly note and this is as the theme has already been throughout the worthiness of christ For, he says, you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, nation, tongue, and people. That's the content. We're going to consider this a little more closely this morning and next week because it is at the very center of all of God's revelation of all of God's purposes. It is the very reason that all of heaven is going to worship him. It is the very reason that worship wells up in the heart of his people. He says, for you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, nation, and tongue. It is Christ as Redeemer. Christ as Redeemer. He says, because you were slain and purchased for God with your blood. His worthiness and the delight and joy of his people is bound to his work as redeemer. He stands as a lamb who was slain. And this picture of a slain lamb is because of what he accomplished, namely that he purchased for God a people. His being slain was the price of our purchase from sin to God. In short, again, he is praised as our redeemer. This is the central reality to our hope, our identity, and our salvation. We sing it, don't we? Redeemed, redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed by His infinite mercy, His child, and forever I am. What does it mean, then, to be redeemed? What does it mean to be redeemed? Well, this term, in its most general and literal usage, has the idea of a... If it's used just more generally, of a transaction, of a purchase, of something being purchased for a price... Uh, it's used in Revelation to speak of the, the merchants who buy and sell. They purchase things, and it's used negatively there. People no longer, they're no longer able to sell their items and people purchase it. But that's just a general sort of secular use. It has the idea of, 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 of something and coming at a cost. Something coming at a cost. In the sense of salvation, it's used interestingly by Jesus when he says that. In Matthew 13, the one who is trying to found a treasure in a field, he goes and he sells all that he has to purchase that field because of the great value of what he found there, picturing those who have been awakened to the great value of redemption in God's Messiah and provision who lose everything to have him. But the concept of redemption is, is pretty broad and wide. Particularly in the Old Testament, and those are the roots of what he's referring to here. Now, we're not going to look at these passages, but just to remind you, there were a variety of things that were redeemed. The idea of redemption itself played a part in the whole gamut of the life of God's people. Land was redeemed in Leviticus 25. Slaves were redeemed in Exodus 21. Criminals were redeemed from death in Exodus 21. The concept of a kinsman redeemer is central to that story of Ruth in anticipation of the lineage of David through whom the promise would come that he, the Messiah would come as a king through the lineage of David. But the key Old Testament picture of redemption is found in the book Of Exodus and the work of God in redeeming his people from slavery from Egypt. The very identity of God's people as a nation stood as the fact, and the fact that they were redeemed. They were redeemed from slavery. And that very often is the idea associated with this word being purchased out of slavery. This is the way that God pictured that work his people he says in verse 6 say therefore to the sons of Israel as he's giving the message that he's going to go out to his people through Moses I am the Lord I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from their bondage I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments it was this redemption that filled their song once God did actually deliver them the Lord is my strength in chapter fifteen two, they sang, and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will extol him. In verse 13, in your loving kindness, you have led the people whom you have redeemed in your strength. You have guided them to your holy habitation. They understood that what was taking place was redemption. And at the center of this redemption of God's redeeming his people was the provision of a sacrifice, the Passover lamb. And so in chapter 13, he says this. And you'll remember the last plague was to kill the firstborn of all the land of Egypt. And so he says, sanctify to me in verse 2 of chapter 13, every firstborn, the firstborn of every womb among the sons of Israel, both of man and beast, it belongs to me. And just note here as a reminder that if God had not provided this sacrifice for his people, that Israel, being just as guilty as the Egyptians, would have died as well. This is an expression of exclusive covenant love to his people. And so he provided for them a Passover lamb, one that would die in their stead. And so he says in verse 12, you shall devote... To the Lord, the first offspring of every womb, the first offspring of every beast that you own. Males belong to the Lord, but the very first offspring of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. But if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And this great picture was to be shown of redemption And their safety and salvation through a sacrifice by the blood of that Passover lamb being painted on their doorpost. The angel would go through it, see the blood, and pass over those who had been obedient to the Lord. In that sense, they were covered by the blood of the lamb. They were covered and spared from God's judgment. Jesus Christ is, of course, the ultimate picture of this Passover lamb Paul calls him such in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 that says he is our Passover. Jesus established this picture in the Lord's Supper as a remembrance of him as the Passover provision for our sin. When we come to the table, we come remembering that Christ is our Redeemer, that he has redeemed us. And so when he said, this is the cup, is the new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness that is poured out for many for the forgiveness of of sin Christ pictured his own life as a ransom, as a payment for our sin. He says he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this idea of redemption is, finds its greatest meaning and import in the work of Christ, who paid the price. That is the center of the worship. Worthy are you. Why? Because you were slain and purchased for God with your blood. So what was the price paid? It was his blood. Why his blood? Why his violent death? Why was that the cost? What was the price? The price was to redeem us, to rescue us from the condition we were under. Condemnation, wrath and enslavement to sin. Now, you know, we say those so often, but I would suggest we stop for a minute and think about the reality of that. If we know Christ, this is what He redeemed us from. You were actually and I under the condemnation of God. We were children of wrath, even as the rest. We were slaves of sin. That means the only thing we could anticipate on our own, born into this world, under sin, was to live our life in unbelief and then to suffer eternally the consequences of our rebellion against him. But that's not what he's being worshipped for here, is leaving, but for rescuing. And it was rescuing by his own blood. This means that God, in his eternal plan, determined to rescue a people for himself through the suffering of the servant of the, ser- the son, the suffering servant. We were under a curse from God. So what did God do in Christ? Galatians 3. He became a curse for us. He suffered the curse of the law for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Having become a curse for us. For it is written. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He redeemed us. From the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. We were under sin's condemnation. So what did God do in Christ? Christ became sin for us. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. We were under God's wrath, his just wrath, his holy wrath, his holy hatred against sin and those who stand against him. So, what did Christ do? And what did God do in Christ? He came to stand in our place to bear that wrath for us and redeem us from it. We are justified as a gift by his grace. Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. How? Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, that is, a wrath averting sacrifice in His blood. It is because He is the propitiation for our sin. We were under a curse, he became a curse for us. We were under condemnation, he bore that condemnation for us. We were under God's wrath, he suffered God's just wrath for us. We were enslaved to sin, so Christ overcame and defeated sin for us and crushed Satan on his head just as he had promised. And he delivered us out of that dominion of darkness. Listen to how he says it in Colossians. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Imagine that. Imagine that. We just noted that all of creation rejoices at the anticipation of the coming judgment of God when he unleashes his full holy wrath on this world. World. And beloved, this is a biblical worldview. This is how we need to think about everything. That God is coming to judge the earth in righteousness and justice. And when he does, for those who stand in rebellion against him, it will be of the utmost consequence and terror and horror. And we were a part of that kingdom. We were a part of that kingdom. You were a part of that kingdom. I was a part of that kingdom. We indulged the desires of the flesh and of the mind, even as the rest. We lived like we wanted to. We thought like we wanted to. We did what we wanted to. We indulged every lust that we wanted to. And God was justly our judge. He was justly our executioner. He was justly our adversary. He was justly the one who was angry with us. And it would have been just for him to leave us like that and to let us suffer eternally with no hope and no light the consequences of our sin under his rejection. That was our condition. We were completely undone completely enslaved, with no ability to change that condition, with no desire to change that condition, with no resources to rescue us and to help us. And yet God rescued us from that authority and domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. To grasp that, We need to ask God then to show us the great glory of what we have been redeemed from. He says this, If you address this father, the one who impartially judges, according to each man's work... Conduct yourselves in fear during your time of stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Do you pray that God would show you that? The preciousness of what our redemption costs. If we struggle in our growth and sanctification. And we struggle with the lures and the pleasures of the world. I would suggest it's because we do not understand this. We do not understand the cost of our redemption. We've become too familiar with it. It's become too expected. But it's not expected. It's amazing. It's glorious. He redeemed us by the precious blood of the Lamb, by the Son of God. He rescued us from the dominion of darkness. He removed us from the condemnation we were under. He freed us from the slavery to sin. He rescued us from the just consequences of our life by becoming all of those things for us. That's the song of heaven. You redeemed for yourself a people whom you purchased with your own blood. And so we sing, I will glory in my Redeemer, whose priceless blood has ransomed me. Mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails and hung him on that judgment tree. I will glory in my Redeemer, who crushed the power of sin and death, my only Savior before the Holy Judge, the Lamb who is my righteousness, the Lamb who is my righteousness. That should be the heartbeat of every saint, not merely here or in heaven, but it must be and it is indeed the proof of belonging to him that it's the heartbeat of our hearts now that he purchased us, he redeemed us. Now let me just note this as well. Who was the price paid to? And this is worth a brief mention because there are some in the history of the church and even now who say that the price was paid to Satan As a matter of fact, our, in many ways, beloved C.S. Lewis, Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, portrayed that very picture of atonement. If you remember, Aslan went to the great stone table to give himself to the witch who killed him, and then he rose again. That, beloved, is an erroneous view of the atonement. That is a ransom to Satan, a view of the atonement. The logic is this... Satan is the ruler of the world... All men are enslaved to sin... And under his dominion... Therefore the ransom was paid to him... To release us from his bondage... Even one of the old church fathers... Gregory of Nysia said this... In order to secure that the ransom... In our behalf might be easily accepted... By him who required it... The deity was hidden under the veil of our nature... So that as with ravenous fish... The hook of the deity might be gulped down... With the bait of flesh... In other words... Satan thought he was winning, but in fact, he didn't fully grasp what he was doing and enacted his own destruction in the death of Christ. That was his argument. The error, however, is this, is that Satan is under God's judgment. Satan may have a level of earthly rule, but he does not own men. The offense was against God and the payment was due to satisfy God's justice. Jesus was held up as a propitiation in his flesh against God's justice to satisfy God's righteousness, not Satan's right to men. The propitiation was offered to God. It was to satisfy God's just wrath. It was to satisfy God's holiness. It was to satisfy God's requirement from his image bearers. And so when we We understand redemption then... It breaks down at certain earthly points. But the idea is this, not some kind of monetary exchange or something parallel to that. But it is essentially this, the transfer of a right of ownership by the payment of a price. And the price of God's purchasing us for himself as a people for his own possession could be and was nothing other than, nothing less than, the blood of the Son of God, the violent death, the suffering of Christ. And notice what he says here. They were slain and they were purchased. We were for God. For God. That is to say, we belong to the Father, all men do by virtue of his cre- planning creation. And we belong to all men, or we belong to God, the redeemed do, by virtue of his redemption. Now, let me just mention this. This is a Trinitarian glory. This is a Trinitarian glory. Being God the Son, the Son receives the elect as a gift from the Father and shares in their possession and the glory they offer God. He shares in with the Father and they share in it each according to their own divine relationship. Now I'm going to mention this. The very picture here is of the triune purposes of God. Why do we say that? Because all things, Scripture has made clear, were created by and through the Son and for the incarnate Son. Creation exists, we've said this many times, for Christ. Colossians 1. All things were created through Him and for Him. For Him. Here he says that Christ purchased them for God. And the idea here is this, that all belong to God... By virtue of creation. And yet in the eternal Trinitarian counsel of God. It was planned in creation. The fall and that a people would be purchased and redeemed. Out of fallen humanity. By the son and for him and for his kingdom. And a kingdom that would gladly end itself. In the glory of the father. So that God might be all in all. It's a Trinitarian work here. Jesus said this throughout his earthly ministry. He says, all things have been given to me or handed over to me by my Father. And he is glorified in them. And in Jesus' glory and all things being handed over to him, the Father is glorified in Christ. It's a Trinitarian glory. It's a Trinitarian wonder. He has all things by right. This is eternal, even as you gave him authority, Jesus in his prayer to the Father over all flesh, that to all whom you have given to him, he may give eternal life. And the end of that prayer is that they may dwell on and delight in and see his glory. Jesus, when he laid his life down to be a ransom for the Father, he said, John 13, 3, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, he laid down, he went and washed their feet and eventually went to the cross. And this redemption by God is extremely personal, extremely personal. It's not mechanical. It's not just from some distant interest that God has as a divine, infinite God that he just does out there somewhere. It's extremely personal. It says when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law that he might redeem those who are under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God sent forth his spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Our redemption is attached not merely to our freedom from guilt, It's attached to our reconciliation with God. It's attached to our sonship. It's attached to being adopted by God. It's attached to our union with Christ. It's attached to our everlasting joy and praise. And it's that, we'll pick up more next week. It's that that fills the hearts of His people. And it's that which is pictured in the table here. It's our redemption When we come to the table and we take these elements and we remember them, we are giving a sign. We are declaring our faith in him who has redeemed us through his own suffering. And we are freshly committing ourselves to walk with him, to love him, to know him, to serve him. So as we come to the table, let's pray and ask him to fill our hearts with these truths. Father, we thank you for your great work of redemption. We thank you that you have saved us, that you have rescued us. We come before you and this table with nothing of our own to offer you. We have no merit to offer you. We have nothing good in ourselves to offer you. We have no promises or vows that you will be impressed with. We have nothing to give to you that we, by which we may, should be repaid. We come to you as Sinners, we come to you as those who looking to nothing in ourselves find all that our souls need and desire in Christ, your provision for us of a savior and of a redeemer, the one who is in, who all of our hope and our delight is in. Fill us with these truths. Remind us of them that we might offer to you true worship and humble and holy and reverent fear and joyful hope and confidence that you who have made a promise will fulfill it. And we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.